I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, so I want to dedicate the class for Rafua Shalema for Bluma Rissel Basara and Fege Hana Bas Devora. May Fay and everybody else among Klal Yisrael have a refuah, have a complete recovery. Um, so we're continuing with just something about the laws of Lush and Hara, because we know that this is a time where we started the three weeks leading up to Tisha B'Av, where we're taught from the Gemara that the reason the temple has not been rebuilt is because of Sinas Chinam, because of causes hatred of one Jew to the other. And of course, the antidote to that is our class on Sunday, which is called Ahavas Chinam, loving others for no good reason, but just because we're supposed to, as much as we can, as much as possible. So one of the laws of Lashon Hara, and there's so many of them, but, um, you know, there's one that says Lashon Hara without mentioning names. It's not necessary to explicitly mention someone's name for a statement to be considered Lashon Hara. If the listener will be able to deduce the person, the identity of the person who you're talking about, you're guilty of speaking Lashon Hara. Again, we said the definition of Lashon Hara is true derogatory information. It's true. It's not false. You're not saying a lie, right? That's a different definition of speech. That's considered even worse, which is false derogatory information. But a lot of times people think Lashon Hara uh, is okay as long as it's true. Right? And they forget that, no, it's anything that's derogatory and true. So we're not allowed to say these things unless we have a, a real reason for saying it. We have to warn somebody about somebody who you were in business with and they turned out to be a cheat. Then you're allowed to directly tell that person, I would be careful. I would, you know, or let's say you went to the dentist and he pulled out the wrong tooth. And uh, somebody asks you, hey, I'm going to that dentist. What do you think? You're allowed to say, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend him. He pulled out the wrong tooth, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. But to just give the information and offer it or just talk about people for no good reason, for no benefit, that's what's not allowed. So here it's just telling us that even if you talk about somebody and you're not mentioning a name, you know, the other person can sometimes deduce who it is you're talking about. So in general, you know, and sometimes when you're talking about them, you might even imitate their voice, or you might imitate a mannerism of theirs, which may allow the person who's listening to you to pick up who it is you're speaking about. So we have to be very careful that, um, that Lashon Hara, even when we don't mention names, that we try to stay away from speaking disparagingly about other people. Again, if there's a benefit, which we can talk more about in future classes, then it's something different. There's different rules for that. And a benefit can even be that you need to talk it out with somebody, right? You had some kind of interaction with somebody and it's really driving you crazy and you need to vent. So it's not Lashon Hara if you're going to one friend or one person or one confidant and you're asking them to listen and help you work things out. You know it's Lashon Hara if you're going from person to person to person to person telling the same story about that person to everybody you meet. That is Lashon Hara. 
However, again, if you're choosing one person that you need to vent to, and that's going to help you get over it, not say to you, oh, yeah, that person's a real awful person. I hate that person, too. Yeah, but rather help you to get out of it, meaning, you know, let's try and find the benefit of the doubt. Let's try and figure out more about, you know, maybe you were triggered because of something and they didn't mean it. Maybe there's more to the story. If you're going to help them out like that, then you're the type of person that they should go and vent to. Okay, so I hope that's clear. Okay, so we are continuing with SNES, and there's still a lot of ideas that I want to explore. But today, we're going to talk about SNES and how it relates to spiritual flexibility. Flexibility. We all know what that means, to be flexible. So we're going to talk about that in terms of the spiritual. And of course, it relates to SNES in the fact that we said that the definition of SNEUT is the covering of one's ego, okay? Now, we said that dress and behavior is all a manifestation of covering of one's ego, of developing one's internality. So I want you to just keep that in mind when we go off on these topics, because you might be saying, well, what does this have to do with SNEAS? But if you think again about the fact that it's walking modestly with your God or, you know, Making God your number one audience. In other words, am I doing something to promote my relationship with Hashem or am I doing something that decreases it? Am I doing something that makes me a more internal person or am I busy with my externality and kind of showing myself to everybody, right? It doesn't have to be in terms of your dress. It can be showing off how smart you are, showing off how funny you are, showing off different things that are just inappropriate at that time or in that way. Okay, so here we're talking about spiritual flexibility. I just wanted to begin by saying, you know, becoming a coach and and listening to so many people now instead of uh, always talking, which is my usual posture in life, um, has really, I mean, opened my eyes to just how much, you know, people endure and how little we know about people when we meet them and how many layers there are to people and their lives and you know nobody gets through this world as it says in Masilas at Yasharim whether 70 or 80 years without a lot of twists and turns pain and suffering and unexpected things that can happen and certainly with um, disappointments about the way we thought things were going to go in our life or should have gone in our life, and they didn't, you know. I have friends, of course, who have become widows, you know, in recent years, and they talk to me about that. I have friends who have been diagnosed suddenly with a life-threatening disease. I know people who, you know, were healthy one day and the next minute they're having trouble walking and the doctors have no idea what's going on with them, but their whole life has changed in an instant. I have friends who've been married and divorced and wonder, you know, why do I, why did I have to go through that? What, what, you know, how could I have avoided that? Uh, You know, why did I have to go through that pain? Why did my kids have to go through that pain? So there's so many things in life. You know, my husband just showed me a picture of a 57 year old man who was in the Miami towers that collapsed. He was a 57 year old Jewish man from New York who was retiring with his beautiful wife in the condo with enough money put aside to not have to think about that for the rest of his life. 
And like my husband said, would, would he ever have guessed? Would any of us ever have guessed? So life is so full of these surprises. And that's why we're talking about spiritual flexibility and covering one's ego. And for those of you who picked up this prayer of thanks, remember that prayer we had a few weeks ago, you were able to pick it up. So I was just saying it this morning. And, you know, I thought that this is a good way to start this, which is deep in my heart. This is just part of the prayer. Deep in my heart. I know that everything that comes from you is the very best for me and designed especially for me in precision and exacting divine providence of which only the king of kings is capable. Now, the reason I'm reading that is because we can't talk about spiritual flexibility without bringing in bitachon, uh, which is trusting in Hashem, believing that whatever Hashem does for us in our lives that we certainly couldn't control or can't control. And even if we thought we were in charge and things turned out differently, that's where bitachon comes in. This knowing that wherever we are in life right now, that's exactly where Hashem wanted us to be and where Hashem put us. And that's very important for spiritual flexibility, to be able to roll with it to be able to believe that that's exactly where Hashem wants us to be. That's the tikkun for our neshama. Okay, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about one of the characters in the Harnof massacre uh, who was killed in that horrible massacre in the shul in Harnof because Dina Schoonmaker, who lives in the neighborhood, talks about his wife in terms of this incredible sni'ut that manifests itself in spiritual flexibility. Okay, she says that not only did this woman lose her husband in that massacre, but the two of them had previously lost a 12-year-old daughter who had died. Now, if you remember from last class, this was a man who went early all the time to shul and set up all the chairs for everybody. He was a man who stayed late after shul and cleaned everything up, and his wife waited patiently for him to come home so he could do that voluntary job. And he, because his life was one of service to others, was the one who, when the attackers came into the shul, started throwing chairs at the attackers and told everybody else to run. So here was a guy who was used to covering his ego, so to speak, and putting himself first, putting himself last in front of every, before everybody else. So Dina Schoonmaker mentions that before his death, when they had lost their first daughter, she'd been asked to speak, uh, you know, in a sponsored evening for the daughter's yurt site to a group of women in Harnov. And she got up, she said the wife got up to speak before her, the mother of this girl and the wife of this man who died. And she started saying about her daughter, you know, when my daughter was alive, I had all the regular dreams that a mother has about her daughter you know, taking her shopping and eventually getting her ready to start dating and God willing walking her down the aisle. But she says, Hashem didn't want me to have this kind of relationship with her. Again, Hashem didn't want me to have this kind of relationship with her. I didn't think it would be this way. But what she says is, said is, but I'm appreciating the relationship I have with her in this new way. 
In other words, with her not being in the world, with her being in another world. So this is what you call spiritual flexibility. She goes on to say, I'm moving into this new mode that Hashem wants me to have. And I'm trying to find pleasure in that. Okay, I'm trying to have a relationship with her that's completely spiritual, right? That's totally not physical anymore. I'm trying to develop that because that's obviously what Hashem wanted. Then she goes on and she says, later on after her husband dies, Dina Schoonmaker goes to the Shiva. So this was a few years earlier. And then she goes to the Shiva. And at the Shiva, the same woman says, you know, when you go to seminary, um, you take a lot of classes, right? When girls go off to Israel and they learn for a year, a lot of the classes they teach are on a, building a home, how to be a proper wife, how to raise your children. There's all kinds of classes that are very practical because they know these girls are going to start dating right afterwards. And she says, you know, you get all these messages about being an abler for your husband's success, having a hot dinner ready for him when he comes home. A lot of the practical stuff that, you know, our mothers from the 50s and 40s understood they never had to take notes you know we're we're all busy today copiously writing things like smile at your husband when he walks in the door you know it's like rocket science today like something that our hopefully our mothers knew or whatever they learned from Doris Day and all the other shows that, that were out there um you know that we like have to like write down but whatever anyway the point is is she said you know you learn about all these things. And she said, and one thing they don't prepare you for in seminary is your husband dying young. So she says, so now that he's not here, I want to continue to have a relationship with him. This is spiritual flexibility. I turn to him and I say to him, I still want to be your Aishas Chayel. I still want to take care of your children in your home even though you're not with me. This is what she said at the Shiva. She said, you know, when my daughter passed away, Aryeh and I were a team, and now he's not here, so I have to do it on my own. So Dina Schoonmaker asked her, he, she says, you know, you, you said you have this connection with your daughter after her death. Is it the same with your husband? She said, um, she smiled at me. I feel it already. Aryeh always during his lifetime encouraged me to go to shul on Shabbos Mavorchim, the Shabbos before Rosh Chodesh. He would take care of the kids and he would send me off to shul. She said, I was sitting Shiva and the Shabbos coming up was Shabbos Mavorchim. And I was wondering, should I go? Should I go or not? Is it proper to go when I'm in Avil, when I'm in my week of Shiva? I don't know. I'm not sure. She said, I didn't know what to do. And then I thought to myself, do I need somebody to go with me? I don't know if I want to go this alone. She said, at that very moment, the door of her home was closed, but she heard a rustling on the other side of the door, and a neighbor was delivering a care package. And she was on her way to Shul. It was Shabbos. And she opens the door and she says, hi, I'm going to Shul. Do you want to come with me? And I'll bring you home afterwards. 
She said this was a sign to her that her husband was still taking care of her even after his death. And she said, you know, in this world, he died trying to rescue other people, trying to save people's lives. He said to them, you run and I'll fight. He pinned down the terrorists so others could run. She says, clearly he has even more powers in the next world than he even had in this world. Because there's an idea that once we shed our bodies and we go to the next world and we're just souls, our souls are much brighter. We can shine much brighter. And we have in some ways more koach than we can in this world. So I'm just giving you this example of the meta of spiritual flexibility. In other words, taking a situation, tragic, one tragedy after the other, and saying, if this is what Hashem wanted, how can I readapt myself? How can I cover my own ego, right? Back to the idea of Sneas and say, well, Hashem, if this is what you want, then help me to learn how I'm supposed to live with this new situation and somehow not become burdened and embittered by it, but use it to grow myself. The relationship's going to be different now. It's not a physical relationship anymore. But help me to figure this new dance out. So this meta of spiritual flexibility, she says, is basically depending on our homer and our tzura. Some people are born in general to be more flexible, right? They're not so particular with the napkins having to match exactly perfectly and whether the windows are open or closed. And they're just more flexible in terms of the way they are. And other people are more rigid. They need things to be exactly this way in a certain type of way. And it's got to be my way or the highway. And it's not good or bad. It's that we're born differently. Now, obviously, if you're a more flexible and easily adaptable person to begin with, it's going to be easier for you to even be spiritually flexible. But all of us always, it's a continuum. We always have work to do. In this area of flexibility and adapting to new situations. And it's something that we get better and better at when we work at it and when we use our spiritual tools and bring God into the equation. And the concept, the foundational idea in Judaism that if God put me here in this situation at this time in my life with these circumstances, then this is where I need to be. And this is where my tikkun is. And this is where I can become great. This is where I can accomplish and do my mission. Exactly how it is. You know, with whatever that situation is. Not an easy thing to do, but that's the foundational idea that we have to start from. So... Spiritual flexibility is the ability to adapt from where I hope to be to where I am now, right? Sometimes you're on a vacation and you take a wrong turn and you go down the wrong road. You know, you were looking for the museum and you end up at a park. So the idea here, the Chazan East says is, if you took a wrong turn, maybe God wanted you to see the view from here, right? 
Maybe there's a view from here that you needed to see, lessons that you needed to learn, things that your neshama needed to go through. You know, I was talking to a woman, I don't want to be too specific, who was married, a first marriage to a non-Jew, and it wasn't a good marriage, and she was very young when she married him. And she was talking about, why did I have to go through that? And she simply like just said, you know what? Maybe it was for those two kids that were brought into the world through him. Maybe God needed them in the world. So at 19, I had to make that mistake or whatever, because these kids needed to be brought into the world, right? It's like that quote I told you that God says on your birthday, you know, that that the day you were born is the day God decided that the world could not go on without you. That everyone has his place and there's a reason for everything. And then she talked about lessons that she learned, maybe not to be so naive, not to be so trusting about everybody. So this is the way to turn things around and try to say, what am I supposed to learn here? This is how to be spiritual, flex, spiritually flexible. What's the view from here? Bitachon means you are where you're supposed to be. And accepting your situation is called spiritual flexibility. Now, it doesn't mean we don't try to change certain things if we can, and we don't try to do better. But again, with the things that we can't change or the things that already happened, right, that are in the past, that are already done, we were doing the best we could with the tools that we had at the time. Nobody ever has all the tools, right? Unless we're, we're prophets or we have inside information. But hopefully when we walk with God, when we walk with the concept that he's with us and he's holding our hand, even when we have to go down roads that we don't enjoy or that are painful, we can become more flexible by saying, God has my back. He knows exactly what I need. And then we pray for the things that we think we need and ask him to bring those things into our life. A lot of times people ask for things and they end it by saying, if it's good for me, let this happen, right? If it's good for me, because not always what we think is good for us is necessarily good for us, right? You know, it's like the lingo, you know, hey, that's bad. You mean that's bad? You mean that's good, right? What we sometimes think is bad is really good. And if you live long enough, you see it. And what we sometimes think is good ends up to be very bad. So we take it up to an even higher level and say, God, you know what's ultimately good and bad for our neshama. Our bodies might not enjoy it. They might even be in pain from it. But it's all about our neshamas. So bring it on. And I'll try to be spiritually flexible. I'll try to, you know, accept that this is where I'm supposed to be right now. Now, of course, none of us want to be tested in large areas, in the major things in life. But we want to start working on it in little areas, right? When our day doesn't go the way we planned it to go. When something didn't, you know, when the Amazon package we ordered turned out to be the wrong size or the wrong color or the wrong, whatever it is, in the small little things, like we talk about when Elo comes up, the little din, the little bit of judgment that God sends us in these tiny little ways, right? 
if we become more spiritually flexible in those small things, that's how we grow our ability to be more spiritual flexible in the big things. Okay. Uh, Dina Schoomaker gives an example, like one Arab Shabbos. She wanted to be finished everything by two o'clock. She decided she's going to be super organized. She started on Wednesday. Shabbos is going to be ready at two. And she said, you know, somewhere in the middle of Friday, some, one of her kids hurts himself and she ends up in the emergency room, right? And it doesn't end up being the early Shabbos that she planned for. Instead, she's sitting with this kid in the emergency room. So she's saying to herself, okay, Hashem, this is where you want me to be. So if this is where you want me to be, let me work on connecting to this child who I'm having special time with. Obviously, he needed more private time with mommy you know, and figure out how not to get angry and frustrated, but rather to ask yourself, why does Hashem want me here? What's the view from here? What am I supposed to be doing in the situation right now? Even if it's just calming down and telling yourself, stop sweating the small stuff, you know, like there's just so many worse things that could happen, God forbid. We don't want the tragedies to be our training ground for working to become flexible. We have to start it when it's easier in the little things, learning spiritual flexibility. If Hashem put me here, clearly he wants me to connect to him and appreciate where he put me. Okay. So, and the same is true with positive things that happen in our life. Right? The more we connect them to Hashem, wow, that was easy. I got that parking spot. Wow, that was easy. I didn't even have to pick up the phone and you called me first. Wow. Right? When those little things happen, we say, thank you, Hashem. You've got my back. You're in my life. You're, you're, you, you are completely and absolutely involved in my everyday minutiae. And the more we see Hashem in the positive things, when the negatives come along, we have all this, you know, emotional love for Hashem in our bank account that we can withdraw and say the same God that does all this great stuff for me. He's also sending these little tests and these difficult situations my way for the same reason, because he loves me, because ultimately he knows that this is exactly what my neshama needs and it's exactly what is going to be good for me. And God willing, it'll be good for the body too. It'll be painless also for the body, right? Okay, to continue, um, the next idea. <clears throat> okay. So, you know, I've said this before, we live in a very narcissistic society where it's actually considered a, uh, a wonderful quality to not adapt, right? I have to have my coffee, my way. I have to have, you know, my jeans, my way. I have to have my this, my way. I don't do buses. I don't do overcrowded places. I don't do this. I don't do that. And we make ourselves extremely rigid. And this is supposed to be in today's, you know, uh, 
verbiage. This is like a, a myla. This is like something to be proud of, that you are so limited in how you have to have things. But we said in previous classes that we're supposed to be like Hashem. Hashem is unlimited, right? And he takes care of everybody in the world, everything in the world. And, you know, it's not about whether he particularly likes somebody or doesn't like somebody. Everybody's being taken care of in some way. The point is, is we're more like Hashem when we're more adaptable and when we're less rigid. And this is all about, again, spiritual flexibility and recognizing even in our everyday physical existence, when we say things like it's my way or the highway, or I can't do it because it's not exactly the way I wanted it, or, you know, yeah, I want to go out with you, but I, on Thursdays, I do my cooking, and on Fridays, no, that's too early, and, on, and, and that, that's too late, and you're a very difficult person to try and figure out how to get together with because there's not that flexibility, okay? And that, of course, obviously, we're not talking about spiritual flexibility here. We're talking about just how do you go through life? Are you a flexible person? You know, again, it's, uh, it's partly home air and it's partly working and learning it. I'll just tell you, my mother had a friend who was a fellow artist and her son uh, used to um, build the sets in the Toronto Opera. And every so often she would call my mother like an hour before the opera was starting and say, I've got an extra ticket, do you wanna come? And my mother would say, yes! And her, her, this friend of hers changed my mother's name. She called her Edie Available. Edie Available, because she said, I could call her at the drop of a hat and she's always ready to go. You know, so there's an extreme example of somebody who's spontaneous, who's flexible. And obviously, you know, she was at a time in her life where she could go, but she was always like that, looking for little places in her day where she could leave and go and do the things that she wanted to do. So that's important too, even for your self-care, even for yourself. Okay, next idea. So this is about Sneud and Chesed. When we do kindness for other people, when we do nice things for other people, how does Sneas have to do with this? What, what, what's, the, what's the connection? So again, going back to this idea of Sneas is about covering my ego, right? In other words, the part of me that says, I did this for you. I'm such a nice person. I'm wondering if you're going to do something back for me, right? So Sneas is covering your ego when you're doing chesed. Sometimes we have people, as we said in our Ahavas Chinam class, that we do chesed for, and they don't reciprocate. So how do you cover your ego when you're doing so much for somebody else and they don't reciprocate? So you have to ask yourself the question, why am I doing for this person? Why am I extending myself? If it's because it's about what's in it for me, even if it's just appreciation and validation, then that means my ego is involved. Okay, now I know this is a very high level to not have your ego involved at all. So I want to say it's a continuum and we're going to discuss what that means. So doing chesed and covering the ego means we understand that chesed is not reciprocal necessarily. 
I do this for you, you do that for me. As Dina Schoonmaker said in a different class, that's called a business deal. That's not necessarily a friendship where somebody's tallying up points and counting, you know, I invited you for Shabbos. Now you have to invite me for Shabbos. I, not everybody can do what we do. And we're going to talk about that. But this is a beautiful idea that I never thought of. When somebody does chesed for you, the idea of chesed in Judaism is that the chesed that they did for you should give you the energy to want to pass that chesed over to somebody else. It's no longer about, okay, now I have to give you something back. It's about, wow, you've done so much for me. I want to do the same for other people. You know, as a, as a balas tshuva, when I think about all the people that were involved in taking care of me, when I was literally like a newborn infant, you know, in this very foreign world, you know, in Israel, um, and the homes that invited me over and over again for Shabbos and the people that were always there to talk to me whenever I needed to talk or cry or whatever. And I think of all the people, I just feel like no matter how much I do for others, I could never give back. And, you know, we feel that way about our parents. If we think about the fact that they took care of us from the time we were born, Right until whenever, until through our lives, they worry and care about us and we can never repay it. But the Jewish idea is you don't have to repay it. Send it on. Send that chesed forward. Use that energy that you've got. I'm passing on the chesed that I received from Hashem and from other people. I'm passing it on to someone else. It's not about me. It doesn't have to dafka come back to me. Let go of it and let it, you know, give it over to somebody else. If someone doesn't appreciate what you do for them, that's their issue. That's their issue of not being an appreciative, grateful person. It's not your issue. You're doing the chesed, not for your own ego, but because you want to do it. You want to be like Hashem. You want to spread chesed in the world. You want them to take it forward and move it around. Now, some people have a homer that makes it very hard for them to give. And we have to recognize that. What might be easy for us, and we've said this before, you know, having people for Shabbos freaks another person out, right? Because they watched how their mother freaked out whenever anybody was coming over to the house, right? And how everything had to be perfect. And for them to build up having a guest, it could take them, you know, three months of therapy and whatever. So we have to be generous in what's easy for us is not necessarily easy for the other person. You know, this is also where it comes into judgment and not speaking Lashnahara. And it's all, it's all holistic, this religion of ours. It, all these mitos, they all feed into one another, Right. Some people come from a family where the culture of the family is they're scared to extend themselves. They're locking the doors all the time. Don't trust other people. Don't tell other people stuff, right? Protect yourself. Don't let others take advantage of you, right? What did he do for you? Why you get, you know, when you come from a family in a culture like that or a culture like that, it's very hard to just 
give freely. And if you are dealing with people like this or a person like this who doesn't know how to give back or doesn't give, you shouldn't take it personally that they can't return the chesed. They're not givers. <clears throat> but you did what you were supposed to do by being a giver. And you shouldn't worry about what they're supposed to do. That's not your job. You know, it's like, <clears throat> you know, uh, I don't know, we were talking about kids call, kids calling their parents before Shabbat or, you know, just checking in once a week and saying good Shabbos. Like, do your kids do that? Oh, I don't know, my kids don't do that. What should, you know, is that normal? That's not really nice that they don't do that. Well, you know, <clears throat> so one of my friends said, so I call them, I call them. And then if they call me by mistake once, I say, wow. I really, I'm so happy you called. I really appreciate hearing from you before. Oh, you were just asking if I could like, you know, lend you a hundred dollars. Wow, you know, I really appreciate your calling the Arab shop. This is so nice to hear from you, right? And that's how you can get people to do what you would like, right? But any kind of direct confrontation isn't going to work anyway, you know? Call me, okay? And it'll have that resentment in that tone. So there are other ways of, of helping people to give in the way you want. But if they're not givers, it doesn't matter. Because ultimately, like we said, Hashem is your number one audience. You want to give because it's the right thing to do. You want to extend yourself because you're a giver and it feels good. You want to give because you want to send it on. And it's not about what am I getting back. It's about sneas. It's about covering the ego. Okay? Now, this is a continuum because we do need validation. You know, from the moment our kids are little, <clears throat> whenever they do something good, we give them prizes, we give them stickers, we give them, you know, every Parsha question they get, they get a chocolate chip, whatever it is, we're constantly trying to promote chesed or good behavior with some kind of reinforcement. But what we want to do with our kids and with ourselves to develop their internality is the idea of teaching them that when you hide the mitzvah you did, it's even better. So Dina Schoonmaker gives an example, let's say, of telling her kid, you know what, before the janitor comes into the room, let's clean up all the papers that are all over the floor and put them in the garbage. He won't even know that we did it necessarily, right? But Hashem knows. I was listening to something. When was it? I was listening to something, I guess, yesterday. Oh, yeah, I know what it is now. From Rabbi Avigdor Miller in his book, Olam Haba. Um, the, you know, what the next world is all about. And he says, you know, if there's a I mean, this is a little extreme, but here's an example. He says, if there's a little tomato that's squished on the sidewalk and, you know, you, you, you can pick it up and clean it up without anybody seeing it. Actually, it reminded me of a friend. I used to have a friend in Binghamton. She was a professor of creative writing at Binghamton University and a, child, uh, story, uh, a child's um, book writer. Her books were in all the libraries in, in America. Anyway, when I would walk with her, I would, she would spend almost most of the walk going on these detours to pick up people's garbage pails, okay, and set them right. 
Now, this was not a particularly religious woman. This was somebody who felt that she could make a difference without people even knowing. And this is the idea of the internality of it doesn't matter if anybody, if anything, it's even better because you know your ego's not involved. You know it has nothing to do with your ego. When you pick up that squished tomato or you, right, are doing something that's totally incognito. And you tell your child when you're teaching them this, you know what? Only you and Hashem know that you did this. And it's good for kids to learn this when they're young because then they grow up and they do chesed, lishma, which means for its own sake, not to aggrandize themselves, not to say, well, what are you going to give me back? Not so that people will clap for them or put their names on a building right? But because there's my number one audience and he sees everything I do. He's got a camera on me all the time. When I pick up that tomato or, you know, I, uh, you know, take something in the grocery store that's in the wrong section and I put it back in the right section, you know, I take that extra second to do something else that's going to affect somebody else somewhere and only Hashem sees it, that's called developing your tzniyas, developing your internality, covering your ego because your ego is not involved there. Okay, maybe you're clapping for yourself, which is okay. As long as we said in last week's class, right? Don't get carried away, okay? Don't get carried away with the arrogance of look at me, I'm so holy, right? Because that's also dangerous. Or not, look at me, nobody else would do this, right? Yetzirah always likes to come along and give us something to, to, to work on, okay? But the idea is, yes, you can reward yourself. You can make it like, you know, I, I get a sticker for doing that. Because this is a continuum. This is something that if we start learning how to do chesed while we're covering our ego, we get better and better at it. You know, it's normal to need validation. It's normal to want appreciation. It's normal to even want applause. But the idea here is that we want to, we know that we're growing when we're doing it without needing that because Hashem sees it and because it's good and it's bringing light into the world and your ego is not involved. Okay. And that's what Sneas is. In, in Micha, the prophet says, You should walk the Tznias with God. And in Mishle, it says, Tznias is the Mida of wise people. And we said that Rabbeinu Yonah says on that, that wise people listen well, and they don't crave or desire the needs of their heart. And we talked about that. We talked about speech and how the Tznias person is wise because he knows how to listen because he's able to curb that desire to always know and to uh, always uh, express what's inside of his heart. Obviously, Sneas is connected to the ability to stay quiet, to be able to keep other people's confidences, to be able to keep other people's secrets. That's a Sneastic person. Again, it's Homer and Sura. Some people are naturally like that. You could torture them. You could, you could tell them you're going to behead them. They still wouldn't tell you what their best friend told them, right? 
and somebody else is just too eager to go chirping all over the place with whatever little bit of new interesting information they've just picked up somewhere. Okay, so it's a home air, but it's obviously connected to sneeze. So just another idea here is we said that the sneeze person learns from others because he doesn't have to quickly rush in and tell you what he thinks, what he already knows. In other words, he's not learning anything new. He already knows what he knows. But if he would just be quiet, he might actually gain some new insights, right? He'd have five recipes at the end of the day instead of the one recipe that he's telling everybody else about. Okay, so that's the, you know, that's the example. So we're going to a different idea here about the wise person knows, the sneeze person is wise because he knows how to quiet the desire and needs of his heart. So the question here is, what about when someone is criticizing you and you have this natural triggered reaction to defend yourself, to clear your name. It's so hard for me to hear that I'm having a really hard time listening because somebody's telling me something or doing something that's in inferencing that I'm not as great as I think I am. So how do you hold yourself back? It's telling us that the sneeze person, the wise person, knows how to not react, not allow his craving to respond to overwhelm him or her, right? It's natural if somebody criticizes us or says, you know, you did this and this and this, we're going to want to defend ourselves. Well, I was hungry. I was tired. Well, you know, I wasn't thinking, well, whatever it's going to be. But constructive criticism can make you smarter about yourself. And there's a lot about this in the Hakpada series that's on the podcast. David Amelich says in Tehillim, when my enemies rise up against me, my ears will listen. Now, what's David HaMelech, King David, teaching us? He says, when my enemies start talking negatively about me, my ears will listen. And he's saying, you know what? My enemies can teach me something about myself. They don't cut me any slack, not like my friends, right? They don't cut me any slack. They don't judge me favorably. They don't give me the benefit of the doubt. They don't like me. They want to kill me in David Hamelik's case, right? But you know what? Because of that, maybe they've got something to say about me that nobody else would really tell me. Maybe they've got some constructive criticism here, something that I could learn because the wise person, the Tsnua person is able to listen. Okay, so he says, if our enemies could tell us something about ourselves, call the Homer, those people who really know us, who love us, right? Our husband, our parents, our relatives. But of course, when they start up with us, we rush in to defend ourselves. So it's a natural thing to want to defend yourself. It's a natural taiva. A lot of times it comes from a good place. But human nature, uh, because, you know, we want to look good, especially to the people we love. We want to look good in their eyes. We want to, you know, so to speak, 
be perfect in their eyes. So if they point out a flaw or something, you know, that's lacking, we'll naturally want to defend ourselves. I was listening to a class not so long ago, and they were talking about, you know, and, and the seminary that I went to with Robertson Weinberg, one of the 48 ways to wisdom is to love criticism, love rebuke, right? Like who loves rebuke, right? And Robertson Weinberg would, would make us like pick a partner to tell us something negative about each other. And we'd have to give each other a gift together with the criticism. And the idea was, you know, to show us that really this is a good thing. You know, you're going to get a gift because really if you were wise and Sanua, You'd understand that even better than a compliment, right, where you just walk off feeling really good about yourself, is a criticism that really opens up your eyes and makes you realize, oh, my goodness, I've, I've been banging my head against the wall. I've been going down the wrong path. Nobody turned on the lights for me. And you did this. And I want to give you a gift for that, right? So this is the idea behind it. So she says that... Um, you know, really, if we want to learn about ourselves, criticism is much more, um, not that we don't need compliments, we have to know our strengths, but criticism from our loved ones who know us even better. Oh, I was going to tell you. So in this class, they were talking about loving criticism. And one woman in the class said, you know, I, I, I wasn't even learning this, but like a few years ago, I decided I'm going to ask my husband what he thinks I could change about myself. You know, I thought, oh, this will be nice and he'll tell me something and it'll be so good for me. Anyway, she said, he told me, well, you take really long in the bathroom in the morning. <sighs> like if you could maybe quicken things up a bit. Anyway, she said, I was so offended. I was like, well, what do you think? I want to look good. I mean, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm putting on my makeup. I'm getting ready for the day. I want to look good. I want to look good for you even, okay? Anyway, it was just so funny because, you know, that seemed like such a gentle criticism, right? He didn't say you're fat, you know, lose a hundred pounds. You know, he said, could you speed up in the bathroom in the morning? And she said, she never asked him again. That was it. And she doesn't want to ask him again etc. Okay. Human nature is to be defensive. Okay. The Gemara teaches this in, in the Gemara in Eruchim test Zion, Rabbi Tarfon, a great rabbi from past generations, says about his generation, I doubt if there is somebody in our generation, we're talking thousands of years ago, okay, who can accept criticism. Okay. Rav Yochanan ben Nuri answered him, I testify to heaven and earth that many times Rabbi Akiva, received, he was living during the time, right, of between the first and second temple, okay? I, I'm telling you that Rabbi Akiva received criticism from me, and he loved me even more. In order to fulfill the verse, give criticism to a smart person, and he will love you more. Okay, back to that idea at Iyat, where we were all little babies, and we certainly didn't like this, giving each other criticism. But the idea was to try and bribe us into loving it, you know, through a chocolate bar or some kind of treat. So obviously, if this Gemara is saying this, it's saying that Rabbi Akiva was an exception. 
right? The first rabbi says, I doubt there's anyone in our entire generation who can accept criticism. And the other rabbi responds, wait, there's one person, right? The famous Rabbi Akiva, right? Who was a teacher of 24,000 students and like, you know, brought Judaism back when we were almost decimated. He was able to accept it. Okay, let me just go on just a little bit more. So this is really interesting. How was Rabbi Akiva able to love criticism? Because criticism is a spiritual diagnosis. When you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you have high blood pressure, do you get angry at the doctor, right? Do you say, what are you talking about? I don't have high blood pressure. I just get angry all the time, whatever. You know, what do you mean? How can you say that? I'm perfectly healthy. Now, let's say the doctor has no bedside manner and he doesn't even give you his diagnosis gently. Will you take it from him? You have high blood pressure. You know, it's not good. Terrible. You've got no personality. Are you going to take it from him or are you going to let him have it? So he says criticism is a spiritual diagnosis. When someone who loves us criticizes us, or even if our enemies do this, I have to listen because this is a spiritual diagnosis. And even if they're exaggerating, my blood pressure wasn't really that high, right? You can still ask yourself, is there anything here that I can learn from? Is there anything here that I need to know? Rav Uri Weisbeam says that Hashem wants to fill us up. He wants to give us everything, all the blessings, but we're like a cup. And that's, and we're the cup that holds Hashem's blessings, but our cup has a tiny hole in it, or maybe it has a few cracks in it. And so even though Hashem's trying to fill it up, it keeps leaking right? The water keeps going out of it because of our flaws, because of the things that we need to fix or, you know, put in a little putty there to, to, to seal it up. Our weaknesses are like the little holes in that cup. I'm trying to fill the cup, but there's holes. So when someone gives you a spiritual diagnosis, a little bit of criticism, a little bit of, hey, you know, you teach that in class and you're obviously not doing it, right? Which, I mean, I got a lot of pressure because I teach this stuff. You guys just listen, okay? I'm supposed to be the role model. So when I, I that's why I can't sleep sometimes, you know? Like you're a faker. Anyway, okay. But the point is this, you know, when someone gives you a spiritual diagnosis, maybe they're giving you a little bit of crazy glue, Right? They're giving you a little bit of glue to help you repair the cup. Does it hurt? Does it sting? Do you want to defend yourself? Do you want to tell them they're absolutely wrong? I don't spend too much time in the bathroom. I'm there for a good reason. Well, maybe you're a little bit inconsiderate. No, I'm not inconsiderate, right? Well, anyway, the point is, is people who are tzniyas, they have hachmah. Not only because they know how to stay quiet in ordinary conversation, but they even know how to stay quiet and not become defensive when they're receiving what we call in Hebrew, tochach, tochach, 
says in the Torah, you should reprove, you should criticize your friend. Okay? It goes on and says, and don't bear a sin because of him, which is an interesting thing. But the point is we have a mitzvah in the Torah that if you can remove a stumbling block before the blind, meaning a flaw that the other person isn't aware that they have, and you can do it in a way where you don't embarrass them, hurt them, make them feel like nothing. In other words, don't get a sin. Don't do an avera at the same time that you're doing the mitzvah, right? Then you're allowed to try to do it. That's in my class in Hakpada. It's a whole class on how do you give rebuke. But the point is, in the Torah, it's, it's teaching us constructive criticism is a chesed that you're doing for another person. You're giving them the glue to be able to seal up their cup and receive blessing for the fact that they can fix this character flaw. You're giving them a flashlight that they can shine in the dark of their own self and reflect back and say, wow, that is a very rude awakening, but thank you for that. I needed to know that because now I can, you know, walk in a way that's going to be beneficial for me and for others. So again, um, it takes a lot of gavura. Gavura means strength, right? Who is the strong man? The one who's able to control himself. Who is the gibor? Not the guy who can go and, 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 and destroy a city, right? He's the one who can control his yetzer. He's the one who can control himself. To be able to hold yourself back from not speaking Lashon Hara about somebody when everybody else is around you, to be able to keep your mouth shut when somebody's triggering you and let it go, or to be able to keep your mouth shut even for a few minutes when somebody's telling you something that they didn't like that you did, the reward the fact that Hashem knows exactly how hard it is for you, right? Nobody else might appreciate the battle that's going on inside and your desire to want to show yourself, show your ego, crave to defend yourself. But if we do it even just a little bit, even just for a few seconds, and then we blow it, right? It's worth something. It's like a child who's learning how to walk. Those little first few steps, even though they're going to fall again and again and again, are a delight to the parent because they know that eventually that child's going to be walking and the process has begun. And we're like that little toddler. We're like that little kid in Hashem's eyes. We're his child. He's saying, come on, come on. And we're falling again and again. And nobody knows the struggle except for us. But by even for a few seconds longer than you used to, you're growing. You're growing in your internality. You're growing in your tzniyas. You're growing in your spirituality. And one last thing I want to say before we go, I heard a beautiful thing. It said that, you know, in my class on Sunday, the title is Loving Yourself and Other Imperfect People, Right? But I don't, I don't really talk much about that in that class about loving yourself. But one of the things that I just heard that I thought was so relevant and beautiful is she said, you know, how can we love ourselves? How do we gain greater love 
of ourselves because it has to start with me. And she said, the way you gain greater love is by doing, is by developing your self-respect. And how do you develop your self-respect? When you do things that are hard and you do a little better, right? I'm not going to speak Russian hard. I'm not going to fall into that rabbit hole again when everybody else is battering this person. I'm not going to, uh, whatever, I'm going to light the candles on time. I'm going to, um, you know, make a bracha before I put that food in my mouth. I'm going to say Shema before I go to bed. Nobody knows about it. Nobody knows about my struggle. But when I do something that's hard, that builds my self-respect, right? I'm going to stay quiet when really I want to talk. And that creates self-love. Because the more we, we see ourselves as people who are in control of ourselves, the more self-control we develop, the more self-respect we have. And that leads to more self-love. And that's where it all begins. Because when we're working to have more self-respect, which leads to self-love, we're much more willing to forgive other people. Because we understand what the, what's involved in the battle. And how easily we just also just let it go and let it flow and don't even engage in it so often. So again, ladies, it's baby steps. It's that toddler who takes a step and falls and gets up again and tries again. And Hashem doesn't care if we're perfect and Hashem doesn't look at the results. He just looks at the effort. The effort, it says, Lefun Sara Agra in Aramaic, which means according to the effort is the reward. Not only in this world, but in the next world, right? In this world, it's all about the bottom line. I don't care about you tried. I don't care about, you know, you were tired, right? I want you to deliver. What's the bottom line? But in Hashem's world, he sees the effort. And that's what matters. That's what counts. And that's what we always have to remember. Okay, ladies, have a great day. And God willing, I'll see you on Sunday. Have a good Shabbos. I just wanted to let people know, I think next week will be the last week of classes. Uh, we'll finish up Sneas and we'll finish up Ahabas Chinam. And uh, everybody will have a nice summer after that. And I also just wanted to let you know that I am available if anybody's interested in a coaching session. So I have like a 15-minute discovery session where we really just talk about what coaching is and whether it's what you uh, think it is and whether it's something that you would like to try. And it's just a 15-minute session. Or if you know anybody who could benefit from something like that, um, again, it's 15 minutes and it's free. and um, you know, I won't take it personally if it's yes or no. Um, I just like to practice my skills. So if you want to be a guinea pig, uh, please email me, Devorah Vale with an H at the end at yahoo.ca. And that's for all my listeners on my podcast as well. The billions of people around the world. There's actually one person from Russia who's listening to me. It's really exciting. And I think two from Germany. Okay. And there's 12 from Belgium. So if I go there, I think I'll have a Shabbos invitation, maybe. All right. Love you, Kim.
Love you all. Love Great you. to see you. Have a good week. Good job. Good job. Good job. Hope you enjoyed this class. To sponsor a future class or for a complimentary and completely confidential coaching session with me, as I support you in reaching your goals and actualizing your true potential, please email me at DeborahVale at Yahoo.ca. That's Deborah, D-E-V-O-R-A-H, Vale, V-A-L-E, at Yahoo.ca. Thank you.